Testament reading is from Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, and 19 through 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these uh, texts of Scripture that are familiar to us because it's Holy Week and it's Palm Sunday and we've been waving palms and we know this part of the story of Jesus and yet we ask that as we think on these words this morning, you would help us to know how we might inhabit these words of Jesus, the story of the gospel, that we would be amidst the crowd waving and shouting Hosanna and that our hearts would be open to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. So would you speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So it's, it's really great to be back. Uh, yeah, I think we, Stacy and I got in like Thursday night and it's been a whirlwind in some ways and, and uh, it's good to be back in Philly and a little bit exhausting at the same time. So, and it's wonderful to be in worship with you this morning as we're regrouping. Um, so thank you. So the text, uh, one of the challenges I, that I have as a Christian is just understanding how do we live as a people of hope as we weep, right? I mean, these things feel opposite to us in our minds. And maybe when you sing that beautiful song you know, of Psalm 126, you feel that tension of weeping. There's a whole lot of sorrow in the world. We're six weeks into the Ukrainian war, as Ryan was sharing, uh, and there's tremendous need. And as you can imagine what the church feels like in the context of Ukraine, and you can imagine what ordinary Ukrainians just feel, the threat of war. How do you hold on to hope in the midst of things like that? A few weeks ago, Stacy and I were at a Bible study in Charlottesville, Virginia, and at the home of, you know, someone connected with the university, a faculty member and a, a colleague had, had just emailed him and he said, hey, I've got a pastor who's an exile from Zimbabwe. Would he, he would like to meet with a group of Christians. Do you know of one? And so we met with him and we hear his story of suffering and persecution. And wow, you just can't imagine. You feel like you lived such a privileged life because we don't live with that level of conflict. There are lots of things we don't like about the conflict we experience internal to our country, but as we listen to this pastor from Zimbabwe and as we listen to another man who was there with him who was an exile from Myanmar, we're just like, wow, the level of suffering and grief in the world is profound. And then you just bring it down into our own existence in a city like Philadelphia and all of the conflicts and difficulties that are there. And you move out of sort of the institutional spaces of life together and you drop down into anyone's individual life. And you have a story of suffering. How do you hold on to hope in the midst of just a painful world? Holy Week. That's where the Lord is stirring our imaginations for what it means to be human in a world like ours. A few weeks ago, I was reading a little book by Malcolm Geit, a poet. Some of you are familiar with his work. If you're not, I invite you to become familiar with his work because he's remarkable. But in a little book that he wrote during the pandemic called Lifting the Veil, Imagination in the Kingdom of God, he begins to reflect on a quote from the poet Samuel Coleridge, who is writing in this particular case about the power of the arts. What do the arts do for us? They seem gratuitous at times. But he says this, he says, they awaken the mind's attention to the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and wonders of the world before us, an inexhaustible treasure, but for which, in consequence of the film of familiarity and the selfish solicitude, we have eyes and yet see not, we have ears yet hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. It's just a profound statement that on the one hand acknowledges that to be human is this glorious thing that is a treasure, right? You look on a fellow human being, you look on the story of your own life, and there's something rich about it. 
There's beauty there. You look out onto the creation or you look into a city and the complexities with which we've learned to live together as humanity, there's beauty there. And yet, this lethargy of custom that sort of glazes over our eyes, the film of familiarity, the selfish solicitude, what happens? It blurs our ability to see clearly. So even though we have eyes, we don't necessarily see clearly. And even though we have ears, we don't necessarily hear very clearly. And this so on and so forth, right? So we struggle and the purpose of the artist, he says, or the lyricist or the poet is to lift the veil of familiarity. Now, Malcolm Geit is quoting this because what he thinks, when he thinks about not only his own work as a poet or as a priest, he thinks about the life of Jesus. And he says, the point of the life of Jesus God in person in our world, God incarnate in our world, is to lift the veil of familiarity so that we have eyes and we begin to see. We have ears, we begin to hear, right? We have a heart, and so we begin to feel and we begin to understand. We weep, and yet we have joy. We hold on to hope. That is the beauty of the life of Jesus. And that life of Jesus begins to sort of solidify and take on fresh gravity in this last week of his earthly life. Holy Week. And these are familiar stories. And it's important for us to remember that our struggle as Christians or our struggle as human beings, it isn't just that we struggle to know God, we struggle to know one another. We struggle to know our own stories. And so here we are in this Holy Week moment, and what an opportunity it is for God to stir our hearts and to lift the veil again so that we see a little more clearly. So let me just ask you a simple question. Where are you? I know you're sitting in a pew, right, in some relative choice that you've made this morning. Where are you emotionally? Like, what's going on in your soul, in your life? What happened this week? What's hard, what's good, what brings you laughter, what brings you sorrow, personally? Where are you? Because the Lord would meet you this morning and he would stir the veil. He would lift the veil so that you see more clearly the treasure that is before you. So you can sow weeping and know that laughter will come in the resurrection of Jesus. How is he inviting you to see this morning. So I want just three things about this familiar text. The hope of the crowd, the humility of Jesus, and the invitation to hospitality. So hope. Palm Sunday is a very hopeful moment, and we sort of bring it in, right? We felt that as we gathered in the back room, and we were waving our palm branches. We're shouting Hosanna, just as they would have been doing back in that first moment when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Right? We're rehearsing the script, and we're playing some beautiful music, a little you know, sort of New Orleans-type jazz, like we're in this sort of moment, this groove, and we're thinking about Palm Sunday. It's celebratory, and it's meant to be celebratory. There's a lot of hope in this particular moment. The crowds are sort of following the same scriptural scripts that Jesus is following, right? As he comes into Jerusalem, scripts born of Zechariah chapter 9 or Psalm 118, which we read this morning. Uh, and they're shouting Hosanna, which simply means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's all that is on their lips. Why? Because they've witnessed the deeds of power 
of Jesus. And their heart is full of those deeds of power. They want that to be the new normal. They want the sorrows of life to be erased. They want, you know, sorrow to give way to laughter. They want joy. They want all that they've begun to experience in Jesus. So think about the crowds for just a moment. Who are they? Most people think that those cheering are the people that have been most impacted by Jesus's life and ministry, right? So who are they? The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, right? These are ordinary folks who... um, who've encountered welcome in Jesus. And they're people that have been healed by Jesus. And they're people that might've been on the hillside when he was teaching the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. And so they've been fed by Jesus. And just so on and so forth. There is enthusiasm in their midst about the person of who Jesus is. You got people like Zacchaeus maybe in that particular crowd. There's enthusiasm and delight around who the Lord is. They are the ones who are shouting and crying out and acting out. Now, there's a problem, and we'll get to that in a moment. But for right now, just hear their enthusiasm for who Jesus is. There's also the soldiers, probably. Um, You've seen demonstrations in Philadelphia. I know that I have, and I know that you probably have. And you've seen some of those celebrations when they're more in a protest sort of context. And you've seen other moments of, like, really excitement, you know, when they police grease the polls downtown so that happy Philadelphia sports fans don't scurry up the polls, right? You, you've seen what? The soldiers, police, making sure that the peace doesn't get lost somewhere in the enthusiasm. And so there are Roman soldiers around in this particular festival moment in the life of Israel. And then there are religious leaders. We'll hear from them in just a moment, right? These are the religious elite, the people that here are concerned about what's happening as they see this script unfold. Maybe they feel it's blasphemous because of who they don't believe Jesus is, right? Or maybe they're more concerned that if the crowds do this, it'll disrupt whatever peace they have with Rome, this sort of sad equilibrium that they live with in this occupied territory. They want the status quo, but that this is a hopeful moment for the crowds that are cheering is undeniable. Lord, save now. Make all of these kinds of deeds of power that we've experienced in your midst, make that the new normal. And who wouldn't want that? It's really sobering to think about these kinds of texts in the midst of our own sorrows and the kinds of sorrows that exist in the world today. This is a moment of celebration, but Palm Sunday is a very conflictual time at the same time, right? It's very difficult to sort of sit with the excitement of this moment because almost all of us have sort of read to the end of the story and we know what happens. And you know what happens, right, with the crowds, that their, their exuberance and their enthusiasm for Jesus begins to erode. And by the end of the week, they're in a very different place shouting out, crucify him. Now, we don't know who were the people shouting out. We know that they're manipulated and all of these kinds of things. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. If you and I were a part of the crowds and we'd experience the beauty and the glory of Jesus, we would be utterly confused with a Messiah that's arrested. Because in our world, as we look at life through the veil of this familiar screen that sort of blurs our vision, how does change happen? It's led by power. You know, the people of Ukraine 
understand that you need greater military power to overthrow the Russian invasion. We get how the world works. And that's what they're thinking and imagining. And Jesus isn't following that script. It's a very different script that he's following. But I want us in this moment to not just leave their enthusiasm and their hope because I think it's real. They just have no idea how Jesus will do these great things. But in this profound moment, we begin to recognize that what God wants is very much similar to what you and I want. A world put right in every way. Second thing we need to see here is the humility of the way of Jesus. Like how is he, what is the script he's actually following? It's not a military script, it's not a war script because Jesus comes on the cult of a donkey. And we say this every single year. And there's something really beautiful about that, but we're meant to understand the humility of it. That Jesus refuses to use power in the way that you and I typically imagine ourselves using power. He holds open his hands, and he becomes the one who experiences the violence of the world, but in this sense, turned toward God's own self. He is a king, and this is a coronation week, but he isn't a king or a leader like that of Rome, and he isn't a king or a leader like those religious leaders of Israel. He's following a very different script, a very different way of securing this kingdom of God, this peace of, this peace of God. In Jesus' day, this ride on the donkey's colt and the people's response of Hosanna and waving of branches is more than the religious leaders in the crowd can take, right? Because they tell Jesus what? Tell your disciples to be quiet. This blasphemy that's going on, this disruption of our peaceful equilibrium of the status quo of life, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus' response is remarkable because he simply says that if they are silent, the rocks will cry out. Now that, the rocks don't cry. And they all knew that. What is Jesus pointing at? Simply this, that there is nothing that will stop God's promise to bring his kingdom. God will take this story to the very end. He will move it forward. And so you and I can join in or not join in, right? But God refuses to let our silence be the last word. God will bring his kingdom. Jesus says, if you stop crying, the rocks will cry out. And this is the deepest reason for us to hope in the midst of our tears. It is that when God knows us fully in our greatness and in our weakness, when he sees the frailty of our lives, the frailty of our confession, he continues to ride on to the rest of the story. God affirms that the kingdom is coming. So hope and humility. But now what is the invitation of a text like this? And the, the invitation is simply, what would it look like if the veil of familiarity were lifted from your eyes this morning? And you began to see the treasure that is before you in life. What would that look like? In this particular story, Luke is telling the story of Jesus' last week of life, and he ties it in to the most recent events and teaching of Jesus. If you've 
We didn't read that part of the story, but let me just mention a couple of things that come from it. Luke says, you know, after these things, Jesus instructed the disciples. And here, what we begin to discover, when you just look just a little bit back, you see two stories of two very wealthy men. And they're different men. One is the rich young ruler. We've heard that story. We often preach it in, in sort of a sol- sort of a solitary moment of reading that story and thinking about it. And the other is the story of Zacchaeus, who is also another wealthy man, but of a more immoral type, right? The wealthy ruler is very religious. He's very moral. He understands the law of God. He's following the law of God. But he's really curious about how to know if I'm included in this kingdom of God. And Jesus looks on him and loves him, and he says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he can't do it. In other words, he can't reorient the treasure that he has in light of who Jesus is. He can't let Jesus become the primary focal point of his life. And so he leaves disappointed. Zacchaeus is a totally different kind of character. He's immoral, and what do I mean by that? Just simply, he's a tax collector. And in that particular moment, what would that mean? It would mean that he's a traitor. He's aligned himself with Rome so that he can become wealthy off the backs of ordinary Jewish people. And he was hated for those kinds of things. We know that what, he's kids, what, he's a wee little man, right? You know, he's he's a short guy, right? So he scurries up the tree to be able to see Jesus, and we often think that's simply because he's short. I wonder if it's also because he's just ashamed to be in the crowd. Nobody loved this guy. But he wants to see Jesus, and he's up there, and Jesus looks up and sees him, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm coming to your house today for dinner. In other words, he wants the hospitality of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' immediate response without anything being asked of him, simply because he's been seen and heard and loved by Jesus, he says, reparations. Whatever I've gained dishonestly, I'm going to give it back. And he begins to reorder all that he has, all of his treasure, in light of what he's encountering in the person of Jesus. It's a remarkable story. The next story that comes in line here is the parable of the talents, and that's a very strange story because it's where we hear of this harsh sort of master and boss-like person. And so you could look on that on the surface and think, whoa, are we meant to think of God like that? But the question of investing our talents, investing our wealth, taken against the backdrop of both the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus may actually give us a clue as to how we might interpret this story a little bit differently. Maybe there's an invitation here that we would recognize internal to ourselves, our compulsions and our fears as we live life in this world because we have been formed through the veil of familiarity, solicitous selfishness, shapes the way we live with what we have. And so here, maybe what Jesus is inviting us to through that story, that very weird story, is that we just choose to be in the story of Zacchaeus rather than that of the rich young man. That we live with generosity. And here in this particular moment of Jesus' own life, what's happening? The veil is being lifted so that you and I might see something of God that we miss so that you and I might see something of one another that we miss, so we might see something of what it means to be human in this world that we otherwise miss. On Palm Sunday, 
Jesus rides into Jerusalem where he will invest what? All that he has in the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing in these next days of the story. On Thursday, he'll wash the feet of the disciples and that'll leave them feeling rather uncomfortable. Have you ever been to a foot washing? It's a really vulnerable moment. Jesus will wash the feet of the disciples because he loves them and he's there to serve them. He's a different kind of leader. He'll give them the Lord's table and they'll understand that they're always meant to remember what about this King Jesus, that he's the one who gave his life so that we might live in fellowship at the table of God, so that the veil would be lifted up and we would see more clearly, we would hear more clearly, we would feel more intensely. On Friday, we'll hear and think on these last words of Jesus from the cross and we'll sort of remember what it's like for the lights to go out. Jesus with us in utter darkness so that we might know what it means to be so loved by God and on Sunday, we'll celebrate resurrection. And we'll do all of that in the midst of an ordinary world where we continue to suffer and grieve and experience loss. So that we would be those who sow weeping. So that we would be those that sort of hold on to hope when hope feels lost. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as you come into this holy week, my prayer for myself and my prayer for you and all of us is that the veil would be lifted and we would hold on to this hope. Listen to these last words of a poem by Malcolm Geit. It's in the reflection section of the front of the bulletin if you wanna follow along. Down near the end, he writes this. I know what lies behind this surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest, and fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break my resistance and make me your home. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that Jesus, you would come and you would break our hearts and you would lead us every step of the way this week in remembering our lives with Jesus, that we are with him in the washing of the feet, and we're with him in the gift of communion, and we're with him on the cross. Help us to be those who hope, we pray. Would you make us your home, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.